Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. It is often asked of me what the place and role of women is in the Byzantine churches or any of the Eastern churches. And one of the reasons why that is asked is because people often look at our church, they experience our liturgy or see our prayer life, our liturgical life. They see usually a separation between the altar area, the sanctuary, and the nave. And in the sanctuary, they see usually only men, certainly only priest men, men priest, male priest, <laughs> and usually except with rare exceptions, usually just male altar servers and also, of course, male deacons. And so they often ask the question, well, what is the role of women? Because oftentimes in other churches, such as the Latin Rite or Protestant churches and so on, they do see women in these areas that are reserved only for men in the Eastern churches. And so naturally the question comes up, well, what is the role of women? I don't see enough women or very many women in these roles in the Eastern churches. The answer to that is always is found in the liturgy, the liturgical life and the liturgical calendar of the Eastern churches. Today, we actually feature women. This is part of the answer to the question, what is the role and place of women in the Eastern churches? We feature women today, actually, as we do from time to time. We also feature men. We give a lot of equal opportunity in our liturgy, in our liturgical calendar. You might recall even from the Lenten season, we had the Sunday of St. Mary of Egypt, and then we also had the Sunday of St. John Climacus. These were two ascetical masters, masters of the ascetical life, the monastic life, masters of prayer and fasting and repentance. But one Sunday is featured the male version of that, John Climacus, and the other Sunday, of course, was the female version. So we do give a lot of so-called equal time, but we've been doing this for centuries in, in the Eastern churches. But now we come to the resurrection time, the Paschal season, and we do something similar. We're featuring women. We also feature a couple of men, Joseph of Arimathea, who took down Christ's body from the cross. But more so, we're featuring the women. This is called the Sunday of the ointment-bearing women, or sometimes also referred to as the myrrh-bearing women. This is that second Sunday after Pascha, after Easter, after the resurrection of Christ. Last Sunday, as you remember, we featured a man. 
Thomas, so-called Downing Thomas. Now we feature the women. A little bit of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, but more so the women. And we say of the women in the liturgical text, we say this. This is one of the prayers from the Matin service. The women prepared myrrh to anoint you and secretly came to her tomb early in the morning. They feared the boldness of the Jews, and they expected the soldiers to be keeping guard. But their weakness triumphed over manly strength, for tenderness finds favor with God. And so they cried out, Arise, O Lord, protect us and save us for the love of your name. An interesting line there, but their weakness triumphed over manly strength. Now, we might look at this today and read back into it in light of today's philosophies and ideologies. We might say, well, this is maybe somewhat chauvinistic, referring to women as weak, but that they overcame manly strength, as if men are strong and women are not. But what this verse really is saying is that women do have their own strength, their own particular strength, which is similar but yet different to the strength of men. And In this case, the verse is saying that the women, in their own particular strength, actually were even stronger than the men. They had to be brave. They had to be brave to go out in the night with the ointments to anoint the body of Jesus because it could have gotten into trouble. Remember how they tried to accuse Peter, remember, when he denied Christ three times? So they knew that any followers of Christ at this time would be risking their lives, if not just their own well-being in general. So they were very strong. They were very brave. They managed to overcome any kind of weakness, and actually the weakness was actually their strength. That thing that we refer to sometimes in liturgical texts, or sometimes the fathers of the church refer to women as being weaker, it actually means softer. But that weakness actually is their strength, was their power. Because the strength of womanhood, as we see in this account of the ointment-bearing women and in the liturgy of our church today, we see that women had that particular genius, as St. John Paul II referred to it as, that genius of receptivity, that women were designed by God to be more naturally open to truth, to spirituality, to the voice and the urging of God. And this becomes their strength, because Although they could have gotten in trouble if they sneaked out at night to anoint the body of Jesus, what overrode that was their particular genius, their receptivity to Christ, to his alluring message and his love, to that closeness that they had with him, that sense of the reverence for his body. And so their receptivity, which is a genius, a particular genius or gift of womanhood, was also their strength. So they used the strength that was unique to them. So in the Eastern churches, we recognize that particular aspect of womanhood that is their strength. And in fact, in the lived experience of Eastern churches, womanhood plays a huge role. Now we have to step back for a moment here and maybe reframe the way we look at the roles of women and men in the liturgy, in the church. We sometimes look at them through what I'm going to call a more secular lens. In other words, we look at them in terms of function or power. That if we see a man in a particular role, we have to see also a woman as well. Otherwise, we think that something is not equal or that we're somehow maybe slighting womanhood. But that's not the way to look at things in the church. We look at things differently in the church. We have a different kind of lens In the church, we look at things not so much in terms of a utilitarian approach, where we look at things and define them by function and power or usefulness. In other words, who's doing what, who's in what position, especially if it 
has a certain authority to it or even a high profile to it, like in the liturgy. What we do in the church is we look at things in terms of sign, sacrament, and symbol. In other words, what reality is being made present. And in the church, in the church's liturgy, the reality that's being made present is that spousal reality of Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And in the Eastern churches in particular, the women play a very large role in the very life of the church. They don't play a large role in liturgical life, such as at liturgy, because what's happening there is this spousal mystery is being played out where we have Christ the bridegroom coming to us as his bride. And the priest, the male priest, together with the male servers, which are really an extension of the male priest, represents at one and the same time Christ the bridegroom, but also the bride, the church. And that's why the priest stands in the sanctuary beyond that barrier, which we call the icon screen, because that sanctuary, borrowing from the Jewish design of the ancient Jewish temple, is the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary, the nuptial chamber in which only the high priest would enter, because that is where the bridegroom God would meet intimately his bride Israel in that Holy of Holies. That's why only the high priest went there. And so, in the Eastern churches, we've carried over that same design, that same concept of the nuptial or spousal dimension of worship. So, the priest standing in the sanctuary symbolizes Christ, but also the bridegroom and the bride, one and the same time. He represents the bride as he's facing east, facing the altar. In other words, he's facing the same way as the bride. In other words, all the people, the church, we all face east in expectation of the coming of the bridegroom. But at certain times during the liturgy, the priest turns towards the people and he imparts something the way in which he is taking on the persona of the bridegroom, of Christ. In other words, he only turns towards the people when he's bringing to them the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, the blessing of the priest, which is really the blessing of Christ, or the word of God. In other words, when the bridegroom is coming to in a mystical way, impregnate his bride, to fill his bride with life through the blessing, the Eucharist, of the Word. Otherwise, the priest stands facing the altar, like everybody else, facing east, representing the bride. So it's bride and bridegroom, and that's one of the reasons why it's an all-male priesthood. And those that are also in the sanctuary serving, such as the deacons and the servers, are basically extensions of the priest. And they're all symbolizing Again, that bridegroom coming to his bride. So we don't measure things in terms of equality by just the roles or the functions. At least we don't do so in the liturgy of the church, especially in the Eastern churches. So what is the significance of women in the church? We have to remember that when it comes to Eastern liturgy in particular, one of the most important aspects of it is the prayer of the people, their chanting they rage in their voices. And certainly, the many women in the congregation are very much a part of that role in the church, of being the ones that really make the liturgy, really carry the liturgy by raising their voices in constant, ongoing song and chant. Secondly, the women are oftentimes very busy about the life of the parish, even the life of the church, even its liturgy, in respect to its preparation, 
in respect to supplying things for the church, you know, making vestments or repairing vestments, making sure that everything, the bread is made, the, the things of the liturgy and of the church are kept clean and in place. So women oftentimes are very busy in and about the church itself, and that's a very significant role. You see, the significance of a role in the church is not always measured by its profile, whether it's the priest up there in front of everybody. Everyone sees him. He's the pastor. Therefore, he must be more powerful, have greater authority, be more significant. We don't look at things like that in the church. Every role is significant in the church. And the role that women play, though they're not in the sanctuary, they nonetheless play a very vital role in the actual life of the liturgy, in its preparation, and in the life of the parish as well. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the role and place of womanhood in the Eastern churches on this day of the ointment-bearing women. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. As a married couple, how would you like to give each other the gift of love itself? Then this is for you. Hello, I'm Father Thomas J. Loya, and I am inviting husbands and wives to join me and the team of the Tabor Life Institute at St. Basil's Parish in Sterling Heights, Michigan on Saturday, April 30th for Embracing the Mystery, a day of recollection for married couples. Our presentation weds together the sacramental liturgical worldview of Byzantine spirituality and St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body to rediscover the why of marriage so as to know the how of a happy sacramental marriage. We will also integrate what goes on in church with what should go on in our homes. For information and to register, visit TaborLife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Or call 708-645-0762. 708-645-0762. For Embracing the Mystery, a day of recollection for married couples. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East the Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's taborlife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. Again, I say to you, Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. I'm Father Thomas Loyal, your host. We're talking about the role of women in the Eastern churches, especially today, because today, in a sense, is Ladies' Day <laughs> in the Eastern liturgical calendar. It's the Sunday of the ointment-bearing women. As I mentioned, we featured a man last Sunday, Thomas. Now, this Sunday, we feature the women who overcame any kind of fear or weakness through their gift of receptivity, their love for Christ, 
went out in the night to anoint his body. We feature them because of that kind of devotion, that particular gift of womanhood. There is a well-known Orthodox theologian named Paul Evdokimov, and he has lots to say about men and women. And I'm going to share some of his wisdom. It comes from one of his several books. This one is called Woman and the Salvation of the World. And this is what he says about women and men, how he compares them. And he says, while man extends himself in the world by means of tools, woman does by her gift of self. In her very being, she is linked to the rhythms of nature, attuned to the order that rules the universe. It is through this gift that every woman is potentially a mother and carries the world's treasure in the depths of her heart. Notice, and you'll see in these quotes I'm going to share with you from Paul Abdukimov, a Russian Orthodox theologian, notice how with womanhood, it's not so much in function, although yes, they do things. It has to do more with her internal gifts of her as a person. In other words, her presence, her sense of integration and holiness. This is what becomes the particular gift and role of womanhood in the church. Paul Evdokimov also says this, Woman has a vocation, not in terms of society, but in terms of humanity. Her field of action is not civilization, but human culture. Man is, by means of his priestly functions, in his essence, linked to Christ the priest. Man, the overseer, sacramentally penetrates the elements of this world in order to consecrate them and transform them into the kingdom. Man, the witness, acts through his virile energy. By means of his priestly powers, he pierces the flesh of this world. He is the violent one of which the gospel speaks, who seizes the treasure of the kingdom. And this treasury is holiness of being, and it is woman who symbolizes it. Woman could accumulate intellectual values, but such values provide no joy. The excessively intellectualized woman, man's equal and constructress of the world, will find herself despoiled of her essence. For what woman is meant to contribute to culture is femininity as an irreplaceable mode of being and way of living. Man creates science, art, philosophy, and even theology as systems. But all these lead to a frightening objectification of the truth. Woman, fortunately, is present. She is predestined to become the bearer of the values obscured by this objectification, the place where they become flesh and live. On the world's summit, the very heart of the spiritual is found the handmaid of God, a manifestation of the human being reestablished in its original truth. This is woman's vocation, to protect the world of humans as mother and to save it as a virgin by giving to this world a soul, her soul. Paul Evdokimov also says this, and again, I'm reading from Woman in the Salvation of the World, one of his books. Confronted by the fragmentation of knowledge and of techniques, woman is inclined to inspire a spirit of integration proper to the integrity of her own nature. In the face of a collective disintegration or a false democratism, she brings man up short before his own dignity, his unique value as a person. Modern man dehumanizes the world through all forms of, of objectification. But for the maternal instinct, any objectification is organically impossible. The mysterious relationship between mother and child excludes any objectification and makes us understand that it is the woman who watches over the human form as over her child. Woman sees an absolute priceless value in the human form, and through this she humanizes and personalizes the world. Instinctively, she will always uphold the primacy of being over theory of the operative over the speculative, of the intuitive over the discursive. 
woman, the enstatic one, interiorizes. His mother kept all these things in her heart, Luke chapter 2. She reveals the root of being, her original immaculate righteousness. The ecstatic one, man, moves out of himself, extends and enlarges himself through his energies, inseminates, actualizes, and builds. In the dominant aspect of their respective beings, the masculine is Christ-bearing, the feminine spirit-bearing. Now, if we also refer to St. John Paul II, a lot to say about womanhood and manhood. He says something similar to Paul Evdokimov, and he warns the world that although women can certainly make their contribution socially in the working world and so on, their place, their gift, has to do with their interior life, with the interior world, with relationship and family, with, as Evdokimov says, with culture. In other words, giving the structures of society, they're created largely by men, giving them a certain culture, a certain face, a certain personal dimension, a certain integrity. And St. John Paul II warns that women have to be careful not to lose those gifts. In other words, they can make their contribution to society and have jobs and careers and so like that, but he says they have to weigh that against the cost of their original femininity. So what I'm trying to say here is that the place and role of womanhood in the church, especially Eastern churches, cannot be measured with the same standard that we measure things in the secular world by obvious high-profile positions and tasks. It's very different in the church, especially when it comes to women. Woman's place has to do with her particular gift of presence, of that integrity and integration that, in a sense, a certain intrinsic holiness that she brings to the life of the parish, to family life, and in fact, even to the priesthood itself. In the Eastern churches, many Eastern churches have a married priesthood. Now, this means that men who are already married can become priests. And where this tradition exists, such as in my own church, in fact, it exists in my own family. I come from a long line of married priests. The wives of priests were not simply just a woman who happens to be married to a man who happens to be a priest, or vice versa, a priest who happens to be married to this woman who has this or that career. The truth, to be honest about this whole vocation, I'll call it a vocation, of being the wife of a priest, especially in Eastern churches, has to do not so much with just being married as it is in sharing in the vocation of the priest in bringing that particular heart to the parish. And in fact, in the parishes where there is a married priest, the wife of the priest is oftentimes seen as a mother of the parish. She brings a lot of the heart to the parish. In fact, in the Russian language, she's called matushka, which basically means mother. In the language of my own church, the original language, the Russian language, she's called pani, which means something like Lordess. It's almost like the feminine version of the word Lord. It's kind of hard to translate exactly. But both of these titles, if you notice, give the priest's wife a great dignity, a very special dignity, but not in a sense of status, in a sense of her being the queen mother, the queen of the parish, the mother of the parish. And she is to live this out not in a way that lords over people, not some kind of royalty, although there was a certain royalty dimension that oftentimes 
came with the Mary priest and the priest's wife. And one of the reasons for this, it was an influence from European culture, especially the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had a lot of royalty to it. But also, the people saw the wife of the priest in a bit of a royal light. She was well-respected. She was seen as very special. And she tried to make herself, as I mentioned, like the spiritual mother of the parish. She would get involved with many things with the ladies and the ladies' organizations and ladies' guilds, but also at the same time being, of course, a support for her husband. She would share in his ministry. Yet at the same time, the wife of the priest, just like his children, would know in a very palpable way, a very real way, the eschatological dimension of the church and of the priesthood. In other words, she would know that although she's married to the priest, in a sense, she wasn't number one. Now, that might sound kind of negative, but it's really not. No one is number one in our life. Our spouses are not number one. They're number one in every other way, except the one way, the big number one, and that is our ultimate spouse, our ultimate bridegroom, Christ in heaven. And as the priest would tend to his priestly work and duties and ministry, oftentimes the family, the children or the wife, would have to know and they would feel in a very real way that they were not number one. They had to be first and foremost, the the priest, the pastor, had to be first and foremost for his spiritual family, for his parish, his parishioners. Now, that it wasn't always a problem, but sometimes it could be difficult, it could be challenging. But at the same time, it was a living reminder to the wife and the children of the parish that the priest, like all of us, does not belong to us. We ultimately belong, first and foremost, to God. And for the priest family, they would feel that in a very poignant way. Sometimes it was difficult, admittedly difficult. The whole idea of a married priesthood is a very serious challenge to the church. It's something to be taken very seriously and to be understood very deeply and approached very correctly. At the same time, it's a tremendous blessing on the church. At least it has been in the Eastern churches because they've had an unbroken tradition of it for many centuries in many Eastern churches. The place of women in the church is also seen in the many female saints that are highly revered in the church. As we mentioned, St. Mary of Egypt. And above all, of course, the Mother of God. Thank you for listening. Christ is risen. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab. And on iTunes, Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.